Good morning. Would you pray with me? Come now, O Lord, in power and in might. Speak, word, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice in your, in your eyes, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is the point in the semester where it's easy to lose focus. Incoming students to graduate school come to understand that graduate school is called graduate school for a reason. Graduating students from seminary come to the realization that senioritis is called senioritis for a reason. Put on that, all that's going on in our nation, an election of historic importance, a global pandemic, a racial injustice pandemic, and it's easy, of course, to lose focus. Uh, on top of all of that, many of you have a professor from the East Coast who follows a team from that side of the country who beat your team on Sunday. And the next time they play, the semester will be over and you won't have a chance to say anything to him. I think they call that trolling on the internet. But it's also easy to lose focus because seminaries are peculiar places. They're peculiar places because you could learn how to preach and forget how to pray. They're peculiar places because you could get so fixated on what you're doing in seminary that you forget the reason you came to seminary. They're peculiar places because you could get a four point at seminary and miss the whole point of seminary. Even in a seminary, it's easy to lose focus. Now, could it be that God would have us look at this particular text on this particular day, in this particular year, at this particular time for a reason, and for a reason in particular related to focus, that we might actually be recalibrated, that we might realign our priorities with kingdom priorities, that we'd be able to zoom out so that we aren't obsessed with building our own kingdoms instead of building the kingdom of God. Could it be that God would have us, in maybe even a providential way, look at a text that would force us to refocus? You know, that's what it did for the disciples. Uh, these disciples gathered on this hillside in Galilee. But you have to remember that in Matthew's gospel, there is no reinstatement of Peter. There is no invitation to Thomas for Thomas to stick his finger in the wounds of his wrists or to stick his hand in his side. This is, in fact, the first time that the disciples are being reunited with Jesus, at least those 11 who remain. The last time that we heard from Peter was in chapter 27, when Peter called down curses upon himself and said, I don't know the man. Uh, the last time that we heard from Judas, one of the original 12, he was throwing 30 pieces of silver into the temple and going out to the field of blood in order to hang himself. 
In Matthew's gospel, there is no record of Jesus, uh, of Jesus' disciples accompanying him along the Via Dolorosa, though we are introduced to someone by the name of Simon of Cyrene who helps him carry his cross. There are no disciples who follow Jesus outside of Jerusalem to Calvary, though we are introduced to a centurion who says, surely this man was the son of God. We are aware, however, of some disciples who follow him all of the way to the cross, and it's the women, isn't it? The women look off from a distance. The women are the ones who help Joseph of Arimathea bury him in a tomb. The women are the ones who, at the beginning of chapter 28, come to visit Jesus on the first day of the week. You know, it's the women to whom the angel appears. It's the women to whom Jesus himself appears in chapter 28, verse 10, and says to them, do not be afraid. Go. Tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. It's there that they'll see me, he says. He had predicted this before his death, and he wants to remind them of where to meet him. Uh, right before this text begins, the chief priests and the soldiers hatch some kind of plot based on what you might call alternative facts. Now, they want to make sure that the, the story gets out just in time for the evening news cycle so that it can appear on Rome's most popular cable news network. But now, the disciples are making their way up to Galilee and rumors of resurrection are afoot. False stories, alternative narratives are taking place. It's time for a reunion. And then we read that they gathered on a hillside in Galilee. Now, a hillside in Galilee was where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. A hillside on Galilee, according to Matthew's gospel, is where Jesus fed the 4,000. Uh, in fact, Matthew's readers would also understand that it was on a mountain where Jesus was tempted. It was on a mountain where Jesus was transfigured, and now on this mountain, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has something to say to his disciples. But we read in verse 16 that when they go to the place where he had told them to go, and when they see him, they worshiped him. But some of them, some of them doubted. Now let me tell you why this particular verse preaches to me, and why I hope it would preach to you as well. You see, some commentators like to get a little bit coy with a verse like this. They come up with alternative explanations that it could have been the original 11, even though Matthew says it was the 11. He's very specific about it. They say it must have been the onlookers. It must have been the people who were aware of what was taking place, people who were off in the distance who were doubting. It couldn't have been the original 11. It's not as if the 11 was comprised of someone who was a denier and someone who was a doubter and someone, and some of the disciples were people who insisted on who was the greatest. It couldn't have been one of them, could it? But here's the thing, that word some is actually an insertion into the English language. There's another way to go about it, and it would be to go about it this way, that all of the 11 somehow were believing and doubting at the same time. That word doubt can mean hesitate. It can mean to be of two minds. How is it that this Jesus who died on Friday is meeting us on a hill in Galilee? I, I've heard these stories about this empty tomb. I, I don't know if I can really believe it. But maybe, maybe, 
that's actually a good thing that there'd be a fluctuation between belief and unbelief even at this point. Maybe it's a good thing that they were believing and sometimes doubting. Here's what our own David Garland writes. Matthew understands that the fluctuation between worship and indecision is every disciple's struggle. I find it curious as well that Jesus, when he speaks to them as they're simultaneously believing and hesitating and being of two minds, I find it curious that Jesus does not say, you of little faith. Uh, He does not say, why are you so timid? He does not say, why are you hesitating? Don't you see me? I'm right in front of you. In fact, he says something radically different, something that would help them to refocus on who he is. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, for surely I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Now, we have two things going on here. We have an assurance and we have a command. Let me start with the command. There's one main verb here, and the main verb is make disciples. Now, you've got these three participles, going, baptizing, teaching. They're all imperatival. They're all connected to that main verb. Now, there's reasons that I could get into for why we would translate them as imperatives. You can email me if you want to talk to me after the service. Just email me at Todd underscore still at Baylor.com. Edu. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that because it would distract us from what the main verb is, which is to make disciples. Now, let's back up for a minute because there's an assumption here that Jesus makes, which is this, that you have to be a disciple if you're going to make disciples. Uh, If you're going to talk about salvation and sanctification, God has to have delivered you. God has to have sanctified you if you want to make disciples. You have to be a disciple first. In fact, Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 7. He says, oh, there's going to be people out there who want to enter the kingdom of God, but they didn't do the will of my father. They said, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform many miracles? And I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Jonathan Edwards distinguishes between the graces of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Some people think that the gifts of the Spirit are enough when in fact the graces of the Spirit are what's central to discipleship. You have to be a disciple in order to make disciples. But what do we do of these other verbs? Go, teach, baptize. Well, another reason why this text would force us to refocus is because sometimes Christians have transformed the Great Commission into a great conquest. Sometimes, especially in recent Western Christian history, there has been a West and the rest mentality. And you don't have to dig very deep to find it. Uh, You can read the Protestant clergyman and reformer Josiah Strong declare in his book, 1885, Our Country, that America is the Gibraltar of the ages and that America holds the destiny of unborn millions in its hands. Uh, You can read Reverend James Dennis's 
Stone Lectures at Princeton Theological Seminary in 1893, where he declares that Western American Christianity will indeed be the saviors of Christianity in the East. You can read between the lines of Edinburgh in 1910, and you'll see that no Latin American Christians were invited, and that the Indian Christians who were invited said that these Western Christians were sufficient in doctrine, but insufficient in charity. You can read John Armott, the chairman of Edinburgh in 1910, declare at the close of the convention, the, begin, the end of the convention is the beginning of the conquest, occupying lands, taking territories. On the one hand, it's good medicine, and we need it. Uh, we need to repent of what Lamanzana refers to as cultural chauvinism. Uh, we need to repent of what Latin American Christians say is a, is a neglect of a non-innocent history of the way things really happened. We need to get out of this mindset that somehow Christianity didn't start in Africa and India before it started in Europe and America. We need to have our eyes open that Christianity is global on the one hand. But on the other hand, there's a saying in Scotland which goes like this, too much medicine upsets the digestive. Too much medicine, too much of that good medicine, and we'll fail to see that Jesus is making a radical claim, a radical call to discipleship for his followers. Too much medicine, and we'll fail to see that the disciples can't accomplish a kingdom vision if they stay here on this mountain. They have to go out to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. They can't stay here on this mountain. Too much of this medicine. And we'll fail to understand God's normal pattern in scripture and in history that he's especially good at hiding his treasures in crackpots like you and me. Too much of this medicine. And we'll endanger ourselves and succumb to a dangerous and duplicitous temptation that would cause us to think that somehow Jesus' command to his disciples 2,000 years ago isn't also a command to us, isn't also a charge and exhortation and mandate to us to be his disciples and to make disciples as well. You see, for every Josiah Strong and James Dennis operating for a hermeneutic, from a hermeneutic of power, there was a Jarena Lee walking through New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Maryland, proclaiming to mixed gatherings across race and ethnicity. For every hermeneutic of power, there were 10 hermeneutics of weakness. For every John R. Mott, there was a Maria Stewart proclaiming in the corridors of power of Faneuil Hall that America needed to repent of its injustices. There was a Sojourner Truth working her way through Ohio and Michigan, declaring through evangelism that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world and that you don't have to live this way anymore. You know, when I was preparing for this message, I was introduced to the story of Dr. Garland's family. I mentioned his commentary earlier. 
Dr. Garland's grandparents lost three children in India where they served the Lord. His aunt and uncle also died there where they were serving. His parents lost their first son, which is why Dr. Garland came along much later. His father was a principal at a school which brought together Brahmins of the upper caste and Dalits of the untouchable class so that they could study and live together in community. You see, for every one colonizer, there were a thousand Mr. and Mrs. Garlands. See, here's the thing. God is making a radical call upon us. God wants to speak to us. God is saying to you, seminarian, to you, junior faculty member, senior faculty member, you, faculty, staff, students, God is saying to you, I want you to make disciples. I want you to go. I want you to teach. I want you to baptize. Now, here's where we tend to get it mixed up as Christians. Sometimes we create our own spiritual caste system, like there's the Christians doing secular work, and they're in economy, and they have to pay for their meals, and they do get free peanuts. And then up in business class, you've got the pastors, like they've got free Wi-Fi to the Holy Spirit, and they've got extra leg room. Uh, And then up in first class, those are the missionaries, right? And they get to talk to the pilot, and they have this secret access, and if you really want to get secret access, you have to go through the curtain in order to get there. Well, you got to be careful. Maybe Dorothy Sayers is right in her essay on work in which she says that one of the best things that a church can do for an intelligent carpenter is to teach him to make good tables. She declares there were no crooked tables coming out of the carpenter shop in Nazareth. So we have to be careful that we don't create some sort of hierarchy or spiritual caste system. Whatever God has called you to, whatever work he's called you to conduct in whatever place, at whatever time, whether it's in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or the ends of the the world, this much is true that God is especially good at accomplishing supernatural things through people who are willing to operate from a hermeneutic of weakness. Here's Leslie Newbegin. The real triumphs of the gospel have not been won when the church is strong in a worldly sense. They have been won when the church is faithful in the midst of weakness, contempt, and rejection. I would simply add my own testimony that it has been in situations where faithfulness to the gospel placed the church in a position of total weakness and rejection that the advocate himself has risen up. And often through the words and deeds of very insignificant people spoken the word that confronted and shamed the wisdom and power of the world. You see, God is especially good at using cracked pots. And so that's the command. That's the mandate to go, to make disciples, to baptize, to teach. And you know, that could help me get through this semester. Maybe even I could come up with a theory or create some sort of framework or 
uh, diagram. I could launch a new class, and uh, I would call it uh, Jesus' vision of a post-colonial, pro-missionary, anti-hierarchical, multi-ethnic kingdom by baptism through immersion. I'd have to make sure to put in that last part, baptism through immersion. You can't sprinkle cookie, a cookie with milk. You have to dip the cookie into the milk. It's a Baptist seminary. We're at the largest Baptist university in the world. I've got to get baptism in there somewhere. However, that's not going to get me through the semester. And I don't know if it will you, especially on such a significant day in a significant year at a significant time. You know what I would really need? I would need someone who wasn't just an ordinary person. I would need someone who was an extraordinary person. This person couldn't just have some authority over some places on earth. This person would have to have all authority over heaven and earth. I would need someone like that. And when I looked up the word all in a Greek lexicon, I'd have to come to the conclusion that the Greek word for all can best be translated with the English word all. Because that would mean that he'd have authority over all things at all times, in all places, and over all people. And he wouldn't just have authority over earth. He'd have authority over heaven and earth. It was the evil one who gave him this seduction of power over the earth. But now, post-resurrection, he can proclaim that he has authority over heaven and earth. I would need someone like that if I was going to get through a semester. And this person like I said, couldn't be an ordinary person. He'd have to be the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 in which the Ancient of Days comes to the Son of Man and all nations bow before him because he has been given all authority. He'd need to have that kind of authority, not just some kind of authority. He'd have to be that kind of person. And somehow his all authority would have to connect to all the other alls in the text. It'd have to be all authority that helps someone make disciples of all nations so that people could learn all that he's commanded us so that we could remember that he's with us always. He'd have to be so extraordinary that his all authority connected to all the other alls in the text. That's the kind of person he'd have to be in order to get us through a semester, to get us through a pandemic, to get us through racial injustice. He'd have to be that kind of person. But you know, that's not all. You know, I'm from New Jersey. There's a lot of pagans up there. I, you know, I grew up uh, working class. Uh, I'm so prone to unbelief. I'm uh, seduced in so many different ways into not trusting the promises of God. And so I think what I would need, especially when it comes to assurance, is not just someone who had all authority over everything and everyone at all times, and in all ways, that would certainly help me want to make disciples. I would want to make disciples if I believed in someone like that. I think I would need more. I would, I would need someone who not only had all authority over all people at all times, but somehow, simultaneously, this person who had all authority was also all in on being with me. The same person who says, I am that I am, would have to be able to say, I will be with you at one and the same time. The person who is the son of man, who is the ancient of days, would have to somehow be with me even to the end of the age. 
And not only would he have to be with me, as is predicted at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Emmanuel, God with us, and as spoken of in the middle of Matthew's gospel, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, but he'd have to be with me post-resurrection. He'd have to be with me as he went down uh, on Friday, but also be with me when he rose up with the keys of death and Hades in his hand. He'd have to be with me not only in the dying, but also in the being raised to new life. He'd have to be with me then. But not only that, he'd have to be with me in the same way that he was with those 11 2,000 years ago. And with the women, he'd have to be with me in the same way that he's with those who suffer and with migrants at the border and with those with COVID-19 and with those who are in prison and with those who are poor. He'd have to be with me at the same time that he's with all of them. Somehow, he'd have to be in solidarity with me and in solidarity with them at one and the same time. He'd have to be with all of us. And not only that, He'd have to not only be with them and with me, but somehow he'd have to be with us in the future so that he was promising to be with our children and our children's children, promising to be with anyone who follows closely with him. He'd have to somehow be with me in the past and with me in the present and with me in the future. He'd somehow have to be an all-encompassing with me at the same time that he's an all-encompassing person of all authority. Somehow, he'd have to be an extraordinary person. You see, the ground of the command is the assurance of the promises. Let me put it another way. The power for fruitful work comes through the promises of a faithful God. And so for the struggling seminarian, for the depressed seminarian, for the anxious seminarian, for the seminarian in danger of losing his or her focus, let me say to you, that the power for fruitful work comes through the promises of a faithful God. For the overachiever, for the person who is constantly thinking about the next hill to climb, for the person who's going at a pace that is unsustainable, let me remind you and let me tell you and assure you that fruitful work, the power for fruitful work, comes through the promises of a faithful God. You see, presidents come and presidents go. Nations rise and nations fall, much like the ebb and flow of the ocean tides. In fact, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Oh God, would you help us to be disciples who make disciples, taught ones? Would you help us to be people who love you and love people? Would you help us to regain our focus so that we might be set free to focus on that which matters and lasts in all of eternity. And would you remind us of these great promises that empower us to do our work in and alongside Christ's church?
for all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. Surely, surely, you are with us even to the end of the age. Let the church say, amen.